brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. This is Spoil Me, covering Dandelion Dynasty, Book 3, The Veiled Throne, Chapters 46 and 47, Last Bite and Family. In these chapters, the Blossom Gang get made an offer they can't refuse, but they do refuse it. <laughs> Surprise. And then they get made a different offer which is better thought out and much more appealing. Welcome to Spoil Me. Welcome to the show, everyone. I am Natasha. Thank you very much to Kyle for commissioning this episode. What's up, Kyle? So this is the end of the book. Can I tell you something? I was not aware that it was the end of the book for this next recording because it's a significant section of the book. Like I am, I still have 10% of the book left at the start of chapter 46 and the uh, audiobook together, these chapters are three hours and 15 minutes. <laughs> it's quite a big section. However, I don't feel the need to go absolutely beat by beat through everything because a lot of it is just a setup for getting people where they need to go. Um, I will say that I do enjoy that last bite is like, the sort of final encounter with uh, Huto. And I think that's like a really good name for it after having a restaurant war between the two of them. And then, oh, just one more bite. And it turns out it's, we're going to nail Huto to the wall. Love this for them. 
So what we get for the start of this chapter is so funny because Kinry is not picking up on this. And this is the sort of thing that makes me genuinely worried. Like, Kinry, you are a sweet bun and I love you. But you are going to need to develop more of a sense of of suspicion and self-preservation because the fact that you didn't realize this was a trap is embarrassing. I am embarrassed for you. So immediately, Arona asks, how did your master find out about us? My master attended the contest between the Splendid Urn and the Treasure Chest, and he was most impressed by the ingenuity of the Splendid Urn's designs. When the widow, uh, Grand Mistress Wasu, announced the Blossom Gang was responsible for the victory, he just knew he had found his saviors. And I'm immediately kind of like, that's weird that he switched from saying widow Wasu to Grand Mistress. Like, I feel like if you were cool... You would still be okay with saying Widow Wasu. I don't know. So that already got my attention a little bit. I was like, it feels like he's like, I mean, it could be that he thinks, oh, I was about to be like a little disrespectful and talk about her like I would to my friends. And these are her people. So I shouldn't. But it just immediately got me going, mm, what? And then Kinry is like, hearing his friend's accomplishments and talents were being recognized pleased him immensely. And I'm like, should it? And your master said he had to have this taken care of tonight, asked Arona. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay, there, there's, there's another thing. And he's talking about this, like, ghost that is terrorizing them and how he thinks it's not actually a ghost, but that it's a competitor. And the whole thing is just exactly like what was done to them. And I'm like, and then Arona says, I can only imagine how much stress he's under. Your master's competitor sounds like a very evil man, almost as unscrupulous as that Tifon Huto. The driver nodded and chuckled at this, but Kinry could sense more than a little awkwardness and nervousness. And I'm like, Kinry, Kinry, babe, I want you to catch on to this. He doesn't. He does not. So they get stopped. And all of these guys are like aware this was a trap, except for Kinry, who decides that he is nobly going to sacrifice himself and jump off the side of this cart and try and take down this guy. And Kinry, bless him, is not experienced in combat. And he gets knocked on his face, very literally on his face, almost instantly. And I feel like his mother would be embarrassed. I am surprised that he hasn't been instructed in hand-to-hand combat more because I feel like in his position that would have been kind of important. You know, like, yeah, he needs to be taught how to blend in and form a bridge between their cultures and her doing that I completely respect and think was the right call. But I'm surprised at the fact that it seems that part of his education was just not dealt with at all because I would think that would be noticed by other people at the very least, you know? Um, so I don't know, but yeah, he, he, he's doing what he thinks is right and really intends to, uh, you know, give himself up on, on behalf of his friends, bless his heart, but it just doesn't, (laughs) it doesn't work because that's not what's happening here. Um, he 
Let's see. Oh, yeah. He decided to make his last words a stirring speech about how the Lyuku never yielded. But when he looked up defiantly, the words died in his throat. Two of the black-garbed men held bone war clubs. They are Lyuku. It was an impossible idea. How can the Lyuku be here on the big island? And as he watched the men strutting about, waving their clubs, he became even more confused. The way they held the clubs was all wrong. They swung them like ill-balanced, blunt swords. No Naro or Kulek would treat their weapon in such a careless manner. And this is, like, correct me if I'm wrong, is this explained? Are they pretending to be Lyuku? Like, are they Dara people who are pretending to be Lyuku to infiltrate other... Because I can't remember what comes of this. Um, but anyway, his people light a flare. And then you see Tifan Huto, who is super mad because he told them to, like, deal with these folks before they had a chance to do anything. They did not count on the way it was going to go down, which is to say that these guys would know this was a trap, that Kinri would be such a huge distraction. Um, and then we get this like superhero moment um before the blinded fighters could carry out his orders a figure leapt out of the carriage like a mingen falcon diving off a cliff the figure landed in front of the carriage raised an arm and slammed a palm like an axe against one of the thick shafts of the carriage between which the horses had been harnessed the shaft though thicker than kinry's thigh snapped like an eating stick as kinry watched jaw hanging the figure picked up the massive broken shaft and swept it around in a wide arc, instantly flattening the dozen attackers standing before Kinry to the accompaniment of pained howls. The warriors brandished the unwieldy makeshift weapon as easily as Kinry might have swung a bone club. Mota Kifi. And uh, rightfully, Kinry is just absolutely stupefied by this and just staring. And... Again, Tifan is yelling, get him, get him. Without looking back, Mota swung the shaft one-handed behind him. There was no technique. The beam moved as slowly and clumsily as a falling tree, but there was no dodging or deflecting its irresistible power. So then Tifan says, uh, tight wind, tough marks, and runs for the alleys. Too late for that, Widi Tukru shouted from the carriage. Indeed, Tifan Huto staggered back into the light a moment later as streams of soldiers rushed out of the alleys to surround him and the remaining black-garbed fighters. And they have got this man dead to rights. Very, very satisfying. Just, you know, we have wanted this from day one. This man is a monster, like truly, to engage in the kind of shit that he does outside of just like the boring petty bullshit with the restaurant the fact that he is out here basically engaging in human trafficking and piracy of the type that he is like you know just stealing property whatever but you know this man doesn't give a shit about literally anybody um so then we go to the scene where they're like talking out everything and how Kinry is finding out a lot of this for the first time and really feeling like a bit of a goon that he didn't know and they, they were all aware of it. Um, I, I'm not going to go into this too much. Suffice to say that they had been 
using their abilities to like do a little bit of an investigation and set a trap. And the rest went down pretty much as planned. By now, Magistrate Zuda's soldiers had surely surrounded the treasure chest and broken in, and the place was likely being turned upside down. He hoped the kidnapped victims would be rescued without harm. And then we jump ahead a little bit. And Kinry is uh, heading to last bite with the rest of the Blossom gang, and he is in costume. And this is a strange thing because I wasn't really getting what it was that they were doing here. And I am ashamed to tell you guys how long it took me to understand why Kinry looks so much like Zomi. And I think I have like said before that I was pretty sure that was his father, but I wasn't. Do you know what I'm saying? I wasn't like putting together. Well, then that makes them half siblings. Like it just, I didn't take it that next step. So the fact that he just looks a lot like her, I took it to simply be a, a coincidence, which is idiotic. Like truly I was not operating on all cylinders. That's all I'm saying. Um, and he, when they find out, this is a, a moment that is like, understandable to me. I feel like if I had been reading this a couple of years ago, I might've been like, dude, get over it. But honestly, nowadays I'm sort of like, mm, I feel you. Dandelion says, I always thought you looked a bit familiar, but now you really do look like her. And they're like, what do you mean? And she's like, oh, well, I, you know, I, I've seen her before. And Kinry's like, I don't know how she acts. How can I imitate her if I've never met her? And they're like, no, dude, genuinely, you look so much like her. That's part of what got our attention about you. Um, and he, then he says, you've been using me. And he asks them to stop the carriage and wants to get out. And Mota has to get out and talk to him. And he is like, look, man, I know that I should have been straight with you from the beginning, but here's the deal. I was in the battle of Zathan Gulf. Gin Mazoti has been shit on and I think it's wrong. And then we were doing a play about Gin Mazoti and you turned up and, you know, helped saved Dandelion. And it was like all it, seemed as if it was meant to be like you were the only one who decided to step in and do something. All the coincidences seemed like we were being led to you. And he says, I'm grateful that you're my friend. Kinry didn't know what to say. Neither did he have names for the conflicting emotions in his chest. They were his friends though away from home and fire pit. These had been among the happiest times of his life. Yet there was the countervailing claim of his mother and the Pekyu. Ukiya Ta'asa must be in desperate straits for the Pekyu to resort to abduction of skilled engineers from the core islands. To steal the secrets of Dara would be to betray his friends. To not do so would be to betray his homeland. And Mota says, it's not right to base friendship on deception, so I won't lie anymore. 
I was sort of wondering if that was going to be a moment for Kinry where he was like motivated to tell them who he was, but it is not. He doesn't do it and he decides to go through with it. Um, so they have to go to this checkpoint, convince them that he is Zomi and these guards to their credit are a lot more, they're rule followers you know, it would be really easy to see the face of your like big boss and be like, oh, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. And if this were a different scenario, they likely would do that. But these guys are doing it by the book. And I have to say, I kind of respected how much trouble they gave them. And Dandelion has to come out and do this whole imperious thing. And she shows them something which I'm pretty sure is like the imperial seal, which of course she would have. And they get into this cave and they all have to like mix pretending that they are fam not familiar with Last Bite necessarily, but that this isn't like a completely new experience for them altogether. Be dignified and casual, but also ask questions when it needs to be asked, like play the role, you know? Um, and Rati is like the one that kind of engages with this young woman who is really trying to do her best to like host, but doesn't know how to do that. And is obviously really feeling out of her depth here. When Rati engages with her about how a lot of the machinery works, this girl is super excited to talk with her about the way this works, look at Rati's chair and the way that's designed. And just overall, they connect very strongly here. And it was so lovely to see Rati like get to learn some things and teach some things to somebody whose entire life is dedicated to the pursuit of this sort of engineering knowledge. And Rati has invented stuff that is unknown, you know, like that is a really cool moment that I was like weirdly proud of her, you know? Um, so they head out there and, uh, let's see, I'm trying to find the spot. Oh yeah. We have the, uh, Oge jars and all like sort of a revisiting of some of the silk modic stuff. Um, I can show you a model that will make the functioning of the silkmotic mill clearer. Please do, said Roddy, giddy as a child who had been promised a visit to a fireworks factory. I love that line. Um, and Kis uh, the name of the girl is Kisley. Let me set up the model. This is similar to the wheel in the mill you saw, except that one is much larger and spins on bearings. Next, these drive the wheels. She took down from the shelf two small ceramic oge jars, coated on the inside and outside with silver foil. A large metal pole poked out of the center of each and ended in a sphere. The heights of the jars were such that the spheres just reached the level of the strips of foil on the spinning plate. We charge up the oge jars. We charge this one, on the other hand, uh, we charge this one with the Rapa variety of the Silkmotic Force. We charge this one, on the other hand, with the Kana variety. As you know, the moats carrying the Silkmotic Force always move from the Rapa pole toward the Kana pole. And Rati is realizing how this works. And 
fills in the rest of the blanks and Kisley is just like, yes, that's exactly it. I was just like, oh, look at you two. I just want you to be friends. So then we have a moment where the gods are talking to each other about what they're going to do here. And Tazu has decided to interfere and cause Zomi to show up here after Zomi allegedly has already arrived and really throw a wrench in the works, which leads to a delightful thing with the gods later, but we will get there. Um, so Kinri is looking through everything and of course, we still have Mota who is looking for information about um, General Ginma, Ginma Zoti. I was about to say Zinmagoti. <laughs> um, and Arona is looking through plays as well. And a lot of them, like, it's an interesting thing, the, the way that plays have evolved over time. And she is, like, showing him how short they would be and how much of it was like improvised and changed over time. And he realizes what a parallel that approach of storytelling is to doing the storytelling that his culture does, that this was before they relied on writing everything down exactly as it was said and doing it the same way every time. And she actually seems to have more respect for this type of play than the kind that's written down um, so I, I did sort of like that as well. There was like a way for them to meet in, and she doesn't know it's happening, of course, because Arona doesn't know that he's Lyuku or anything about that. But, you know, inside of Kinri, he's sort of like realizing, oh, we sort of see those same way on some things here. That's interesting. Um, so then we go to, uh, the room where he's looking through all of Zomi's stuff. And he's sort of puzzled at the fact that there are some very high quality writing items here and like a lot of clearly valuable equipment. And then there's this like teapot that's really cheap and kind of janky. And he sees a design at the bottom that is like a Lyuku symbol of a Garinifin. And he brings it out to Arona and is like, what is this? What does that mean? He's thinking that it's the Lyuku thing. And she says, no, it's a symbol uh, for a three-legged jug, drinking vessels dating from the early days of the Tiro states for nobles. No one uses them now except at big ceremonial occasions. Some pubs put pictures of them on their signs to give themselves a bit of class. The workmanship on that one is so poor, it must be from a very mediocre place. The three-legged jug is also called a kunikin. There are also jugs with four, five, and six legs. And I do like that at this point, you know, we've had so many things that sort of parallel each other and the connections between the way that Lyuku approach things and Dara approaches things. And then there's a literal symbol that they share and they mean entirely different things, but it's really fascinating. And I wonder if this is going to like come up again, you know, how this symbol like is the same. Um, and he looks at this, uh, I'm trying to find this spot here, two memorial tablets to the dead. Both morning tablets were of rough hewn wood adorned with large wax logograms and then painted over in black. 
Instead of the creation of eminent monks, these were homemade. On the first tablet, beloved parents Oga and Aki. There was no family name, and the logograms were written with some of the knife strokes omitted. Kinri was familiar with this custom in Dasu. It was considered improper and disrespectful for a child to write the logograms in family elders' names in full. By omitting a few strokes, the child expressed their gratitude and commitment toward the ancestors. Wild idea. Very interesting to me. Um, and then there is a painting of a young woman who resembles dandelion quite a bit. And he's like, that feels like it means something. And immediately kind of tells himself, no, it doesn't. It sure doesn't. It doesn't mean anything. It's nothing. It's fine. I was like, oh, bruh, you are going to have to face this sooner rather than later at this point. Um, and then he finds the turtle shells and he's looking through them. And this is when he gets caught and he turns around. Uh, oh no, not when he gets caught. Sorry. This is when Mota comes in and he has the information about Ginmazoti and there's a Imperial seal on it. And Dandelion has to take a moment and they have to like, decide if they're re really willing to do this because this is straight trees and like being here is already dangerous. But once they really break that, that's never, there's no going back, you know? And Arona is like, you should do it because you won't get in trouble. And Dandelion is like, what do you mean? And realizes, you know who I am. And uh, Arona says, don't, like, you're the only one. Why do you think we brought you with us? And Dandelion is like, first of all, don't tell Kinry. And she doesn't say it, but it's very clear that's who she means. And Arona says, essentially, we can, we will tell him if you don't do this. And Mota intercedes here and says, Rona, look, I understand that you love me. And you want me to find this information and we're doing this, you know, because of something that I need. But you can't make yourself into this kind of person for my sake. Don't, don't do this, you know? Um, and let's see, after a moment, Weedy nodded. After all we've been through, I'm sorry. I am ashamed. Arona dropped her face into her hands. Her shoulders heaved, though she made no sound. Mota took a deep breath and ripped away the first seal. It's just a wax seal. Mutage is more than a logogram. It's to be shown through actions. The Empress may hold the seal of Dara, but she doesn't dictate our stories of loyalty and faith. I don't consider it treason to find proof of the Marshal's Mutage to find the truth. Do you? And then we jump ahead again. We've spoke about stories of the Liyuku and there are all of these scrolls that Dandelion gives to Kinri to read. And it is just all about the atrocities that they have suffered and Zomi's mother being burned alive 
And he is absolutely devastated. It's really fucking him up because he wants to believe that these are lies. And everything aligns so much with one another that there's really no way to let that be the truth in his head anymore. Like there's just, there's a point at which when you begin to educate yourself about the history of your own people, you can be resistant. And then there is a point and it's like different for everybody where you finally hit a spot that you're like, no, that's exactly what this is. Actually, you've been resistant. You've been wanting to believe that maybe things were exaggerated or that whoever did these like awful things was, was a particularly bad seed. And like, you know, just an example of one of the most extreme types of monster. And then you begin to look further and realize how many of them are like that. And it's not an aberration and it's not an exception. It is the way it's set up. That's how it is. And he also realizes that the stories of the founding of Ukiyo-Asa have not been told to him. Uh, except the one that has been told without change every time, which is not how they tell stories. Um, they always told it the same way. What story doesn't change from telling to telling to, from telling to telling no story dance from the shamans ever told the same story, the same way a chill came into his heart. A dead story doesn't change. A made-up story that must be told exactly the same way each time, lest it is revealed for the lie it is. The stories from the refugees concerning Kutanrova had the ring of truth because he could compare them against his own experience at Kigo Yezu. If he believed those stories by refugees, why wouldn't he believe the stories from refugees under uh, about life under Tenryo? Why wouldn't he believe this account by Zomiki Dosu? There never was a paradise in Ukutasa. Kutanrovo is doing exactly what Pekutenryo wanted. My mother, Emperor Thake, and Tanvanaki were all lying. And this is really devastating. Like, we know that he was faced with a really horrific situation when he witnessed, like, that baby being tortured and, you know, the whole way that that was all handled. But it didn't really occur to me that he was thinking of Kutunrovo as being exceptional. And I forgot also about how he still has this like idealized I version of, of Peggy Tenryo in his head. And that's so funny because like, I think at the beginning of my coverage of this book, I said something about how I appreciated going back and rereading the end of the previous book and being reminded that Pecutenrio was a complete monster a lot of the time, because in this book where he is like part of the past and like a tradition that's being taught now and part of like a, a pantheon of almost legends, I was falling into the trap of seeing him as somehow more noble and then when I read that, I was like, oh my God, right. I forgot about all this truly horrific shit that he did and was genuinely kind of surprised at myself that I fell into that so easily and just completely 
let myself forget the worst of it because you would think you would remember the worst of it and forget the best of it when somebody's that awful. I, I I let myself get won over by the version of him that was being talked about by present living characters. Um, and at this point, you know, he's like trying so hard to keep it together, kind of flipping out. And then it goes dark. And I love this so much. When the lights come back on, some of them are bound up. Dandelion is like yelling at the guards and like, take my makeup off. You'll be sorry. And he looks up and here is Zomikidosu. And she's yelling at Dandelion. And we have a scene between the two of them. I'm going to keep calling her Dandelion. I know it's Farah, but like Dandelion really does suit her. Um, and it's not long before Zomi zeroes in on the fact that Dandelion has feelings for Kinri and that there's like something going on there. Dandelion clearly has like her suspicions about Kinri being Liuku, which I kind of thought he had showed his hand and seems like it was even before I thought he had shown his hand that she was starting to clue in on this. Um, so she, Zomi goes to speak to him and she thinks for a moment how she wishes that torture was still allowed. And I'm like, if you were a different person, Zomi, the fact that it isn't allowed would not stop you, but I am glad you're not that person. Um, and she has this, uh, this object a money in a knotwork purse, a few pieces of polished bone. One was apparently in the process of being carved into a hairpin with a dandelion-shaped knob at the end, a silk handkerchief with a sappy message, clearly Farah's hand, and a turtle shell etched in the, si the style of the Scrubland tribes. Instead of the three-legged kunikin, the carapace of Kinri's shell showed a map of Dara. She shook her head, puzzled. Perhaps a rough guide used by the spy to find out where to go once he arrived in Kordara? She flipped the shell over to look at the plastron. Time seemed to stop. What she was seeing was impossible. There was a portrait of a family. A father, a mother, two older boys, and a baby. The figures were dressed in the style of fisher folk from Dasu, similar from, uh, familiar from Zomi's childhood. The figures were outlined roughly and devoid of distinctive features except for the woman holding a scale from which a fish dangled, and the baby swaddled in clothes decorated with the image of a tiny cat. The woman was weighing the fish. Yes, there was a dot in the coastline of Dasu on the map marking the location of her home village. How could this be? And she realizes what's going on. And Kinri had not realized that Ogo was his father. And looking back is like, that makes a lot of sense, actually, especially considering that my mom didn't want to tell me so that all of her husbands would stay loyal. And uh, there is, I really appreciated. Zomi calls his mother a rapist and says that his birth was a result of an act of dominance. And, I was very glad that they actually addressed it this way because there is, you know, there are plenty of writers who would try and turn it into something it's not. And I know that Ken Liu is not that type of writer, but you could also just not talk about it at all. 
not turn it into a romance, but also just kind of sidestep it. And I really like the fact that Zomi is like, no, we're going to look at the fact that the power imbalance is completely out of whack. And there's no way for him to like consent in that situation. What was she, what was he going to do when your mother could do what she could to him? I mean, that was simply not an option for him. Um, and the whole, like the way that the two of them connect, it's so painful because Kinry didn't realize until they've gotten quite a ways into their conversation that the way Zomi is looking at him now is as somebody who is actually from Dara, but got stolen away and raised among the Liuku kind of against his will, which we know is simply not how it was. He was raised Liuku and has found out that he has a Dara father and knows the language and customs and has lived here and grown to love the people. But he is Liuku very, very like clearly and nobody wants to see him that way. And she says something about how you're not like them. You're a good Liuku. And this theme comes up repeatedly in these chapters of Dandelion also not wanting to see him as Liuku. His friends also being like, we're so glad that you're home. And none of them considering even for a moment that he is Liuku in his heart in any way that he would want to go back that now that he knows the truth, he would still care about the people that he is a part of, you know, and it's a really fascinating position because oftentimes when we come into this sort of like comparison where, Oh, you're not like them. You're a good blank. This is like, something that Rashawn ran into a lot because she was somebody who didn't code switch a lot. She quote talked white and was into like hardcore music and often got accused of being white in like on the inside. And this resulted in a lot of white people saying to her, Oh, I don't even see you as black. You know, like that was a compliment like, because she is interested in the same things as them, it means that she just abandons an, an entire portion of her identity. And that for them, that's just a good thing that makes her more of a person in their eyes. And that's a real thing that happens. But the thing is, in that scenario, black folks are people who have been marginalized from the start of this country's founding here it's happening to somebody who is of the oppressors and so a better comparison would be if it weren't an actual like if i was able to pass as black living among black people and then finding out that I have like 
white slave owning ancestors or parents. It's not even ancestors. It's not that far back. It's literally my parents and me just realizing that's all true. And I have to reconcile the fact that they did all of the horrific shit I've heard about and they are still my family and I love them. It's like, it's a weird thing to put both of those into the same character. And I think he's done it really well. I think it's effective and beautifully done, but it was just kind of a mind fuck, you know, because it's interesting to sort of talk about the Liuku as if they are not quite human and take their humanity away in the way that usually is done by like a the conquering party, the oppressor. And yet that's being done by the folks who are being oppressed. Granted though, the people who came to the Liuku from Dara were the initial oppressors. It's just, it's a big cycle. And throughout all of this, I just kept thinking about the complicated relationship that white people have with their own whiteness and how often this comes up because recently there was a woman who was outed. She was a major um, figure in native circles, somebody outspoken about native rights and generally a huge activist. And she was outed as having no native blood whatsoever, but she was taking up space in all of these like native support communities. She was wearing clothing that was like designated to people of a certain group. She was taking credit for beadwork and artwork that wasn't hers and partaking in like ceremonies and things that weren't for her and absolutely dominating this scene despite being white and not having any native blood. And we all know about Rachel Dolezal, who is a white woman cosplaying as a black woman, trying to act like this is just a matter of perception when anybody who with eyes can see what she looked like when she was young before she started cosplaying. That is a white woman. And Rashawn and I have talked a lot about like the phenomenon of white people who who want to escape whiteness and the, the, like, I think the motivation being wanting to escape the guilt of being from a group of oppressors, because part of them can see the like horrific history and they want to pretend they're not part of that. And also the need to not only pretend to not be white, but if you do take up space in a marginalized group, needing to be a leader within that group, you have to be in charge. And why is that? And I'm not going to go too far off on that tangent, but I just think it's really interesting to see how it's like something that happens with white people now that a lot, at least in their minds, a lot of the worst of the violence and marginalization is in the past and they can sort of distance themselves from it somehow. And there's a sort of safety to that 
feeling like, well, the past is the past. It's like not long past. And a lot of it is still very much happening. But I guess. And Kinry, it's like literally happened in front of him just recently. And how much harder that is to distance yourself from. You just can't do it. You saw it. And now you found out that the people you trusted most, who you believed an entire narrative, they all were lying. And they weren't just like lying, like keeping the worst from you. They literally inverted the entire story and made themselves the victims in a way that is truly mind bending. You know, I just really the the way Kinry is written in these chapters is devastating. Like I was just so choked up a couple of times because everyone around him just takes it for granted that he of course would never want to be seen as Liuku and isn't Liuku. It just never enters anyone's head that he feels like he's part of that community at all anymore. They just don't understand why he would ever want to be, you know? And ew, God, you know, I if he were a different kind of person, he might not want to be. He might take their extended hand and completely leave the Liuku part of himself behind and try and and sort of like, I guess, drop any responsibility for his position of privilege in that situation. It would be a very tempting thing to do, you know, um, so yeah, I'm just, I'm very curious what winds up happening with him. And I really do have to speed things up, but I will just say that eventually there is a moment where they can't find him and they have to go and track him down. And it's said that they like found him on the edge of a cliff with his legs dangling. And y'all, I thought he had killed himself and I was flipping out genuinely. I, I misread and I thought it was like his legs were dangling, like he had hanged himself. I lost it. Like, I was really upset. I really was like, there's so much left for this kid. What? How is this? That doesn't feel right. And then I, then he's like, you know, got a line of dialogue. And I was like, oh, my God. And I had to, like, go back. Completely misread that. So, anyway, we have a scene with... Uh, Zomi and the rest of the Blossom gang. And Zomi has had some time to talk to Ratiera to look at some of the like, you know, the design of her chair and various things and talk to them and overall be very impressed at what their capabilities are. And she extends a job with the government to them, thinking that she's doing them a real favor. And the fact that they're not interested blows her mind. Like the only people that she has ever been in contact with in her life are folks who have had the same kinds of ambition she has and who want to be recognized in the same way that she is. And so for this to be not on their mind at all, like just, this is simply not an ambition of theirs. It really short circuits her. And basically what she tries to do here is blackmail them into becoming servants of the throne and is like, if you don't agree, I'm going to turn you in for treason. And Mota is like, Hmm, this is interesting. 
the Liuku are like, you know, kidnapping people and forcing them to work for them. And you can tell yourself that your goals are better, but you're doing the same thing. That doesn't fuck you up a little bit. I've read the transcript of the trial of Marshal Ginmazoti. You were once also forced to serve a power against your conscience. Do you wish to emulate the Empress or the Marshal? And she literally runs away. And she has to, like, take a bit to just, like, think about the overall implications of what she's, go like, trying to do in her life. Um... I really do love this moment where, let's see, uh, was this the truth? He's talking to Zomi about the transcript. No. Then what was the truth? The truth was not something that could be captured by words. Would all these added up together be the truth? I heard many other accounts of great atrocities committed by the Liuku, but since I was not the witness, I could not include them in my report. I wanted to be sure that my words were dispassionate, unimpeachable, and that the Empress could decide on the context of the war based on facts, not passions. Well, why leave out experience? That's the most important part. Because experience cannot be reduced to symbols. Words are slippery, frail things and powerless to carry the weight of the truth. I can tell you that my Thera is the most beautiful woman in the world, or that Akikidosu is the best mother anyone can have, but you cannot experience my love through these words. I can tell you that Tenryo is the cruelest conqueror, and that Tanvanaki is a merciless foe, but you cannot feel my hatred through these syllables. So the accounts of the survivors and refugees of unredeemed Dara by the time they reach the Empress are reduced to names of villages raised, numbers of missing, wounded, and dead. They're not the truth, because the, the truth of the Liuku in Dara is darkness unspeakable. And he has had, like, nightmares about, like, burning his friends alive with Garinovan fire and stuff. He doesn't want to look in the mirror because he doesn't want to see the resemblance he has to his mother. The whole thing is, it's just really, really rough. Um, and finally, Kinri is given the scrolls about the trial with Ginmazoti to read through. And he comes to find out that like Dara isn't better. They have lied. They have covered stuff up as well. But when previously this would have felt very like vindicating, he just doesn't get any pleasure out of it because he knows, Oh, so everybody's garbage. <laughs> and I was like, ah, oh, I'm sorry, bro. But yeah, it really is. That's just people are fucking people, man. And some are worse than others. And some are better than others. And some have more privilege and some have less privilege. But when it comes down to it, if any of us were put in the positions of a lot of other people, we wouldn't really do that much better. A lot of the time we're all flawed, you know, just the difference in what kind of ability we have to cause misery in the people around us, like how much power we're given in that respect. Um, so Zomi, he asks her then about like, why all of these atrocities are kept secret, why they don't share them with everybody. And 
she says, sometimes the truth is not what the world needs to be better. When the hegemon swept through Dara on his war steed, he was driven by the memories of the slaughter of his family. He rallied his troops by reminding them of the conquering Zara armies, burying thousands and tens of thousands alive. And Baragin granted clemency. When he became emperor, he relieved taxes of those who had supported the hegemon. He didn't seek vengeance. He didn't remind the populace of the cruelties. He didn't build monuments to innocents who had died. He kept the truth sealed away. Sometimes the truth can be a confirmation for falsehoods. There are enough tales of the atrocities committed by the Liyuku spreading from mouth to mouth already, and a book of eyewitness accounts would have confirmed the tales and made even more bloody exaggerations believable. This is an interesting take. I see what they mean. Probably that is for the best. But it's a very slippery slope kind of thing to be like, I'm hiding this information for your own good. Uh, you know, like, I get what she's saying. I don't even necessarily think this was the wrong call here, but it's a really fine line. Um, yeah, so then we go to... Zomi thinking about the Blossom Gang and how eventually she comes to the realization they do need the Blossom Gang, but they don't need to be like, they don't need to be put to work the way she's thinking. Um, and for years she had done as the Empress demanded, believing that Gia was trying to do the right thing for Dara. But what if she was wrong? What if Firo's private army was the only hope for Dara? Empress Gia had been wrong once before. She could be wrong again. She had always tried to work within the elaborate system of bureaucracy, tried to ugh, within the elaborate system of bureaucracy set up by Gia to follow the rules. But what if there was no way to achieve what was right unless she was willing to cut the strings, no longer soar as a kite, but to dive freely as one of Luan's me uh, mechanical Mingen falcons? Gin Mazoti had harbored fugitives because it was Mutache. She had refused to confess to treason because it was Mutache. She had ultimately accepted the judgment of treason to protect the throne and look up arms to fight for Dara, despite her stained name, also because it was Mutache. After you have reasoned through the thicket, you must still rely on the compass of the passion-pumped heart. Once you have worked out all the odds, you still have to toss the dice and take that leap of faith. So she goes to the Blossom Gang and says, all right, guys, I have, I have something else that I could ask for you to do. You won't be fighting the Liuku. You could if you wanted, but you, that's not the assignment. But it will be dangerous. And Weedy is like, ooh, okay. You're wanting to, us to work on something that is not authorized by the Empress. And Zomi's like, yeah, even by like mentioning this to you, I could be probably just killed for this. You have to understand how risky this is. And Weedy is like, so what if we don't want to do that either? And Zomi's like, look, you can go and I will just let you go. If you want to join, you do that because you really want to. But I know that you guys have talked to the refugees. You've seen the accounts. You know what's going on in Unredeemed Dara. 
And I am starting to think that the Empress just doesn't want to take the risk of going to war and she'll never authorize an invasion. And the peace treaty is going to expire and they're still going to be stuck there. And she hasn't shared this, but in a couple years, the Wall of Storms is going to open again. And we don't know what's going to happen. She has kept this information super secret because she knows people are going to freak the fuck out. But she is just so sure she's going to be able to keep appeasing the Lyuku that she doesn't want to do anything like overt. And what's killing me is like, I get why Zomi thinks all this, but we also know that Gia is working on this drug and I don't know what she's planning to do with that. We haven't seen any motion with that, this book. So I genuinely don't know how, what Fira is trying to do and what Gia is going to do are going to bash up against each other, but I feel like it's going to be really bad. I'm not excited about it. I really feel like if we're going to do war, let's do right. Like, war what Gia is trying to do with this drug I feel like that's just such a deeply damaging on a level that she can't even comprehend seed to plant just a fucking war get it done and over with you know not that that's not going to leave scars but we know what drug addiction does and uprooting that it doesn't just stop it doesn't. It doesn't like, uh, I just, I'm, I'm really fucking leery about that. Um, so they all agree that they will become traitors in order to save Dara. And they get on the road. And, uh, this is when <laughs> Zomi, she, is looking for, let's see, Aya returned a little later looking puzzled. I can't find Kinri anywhere. Farah, feeling trepidatious, went towards Zomi. Um, and this is the conversation where Zomi says they were not equals. It was an act of domination. I thought that this is the part where he runs off, but we haven't gotten there quite yet. Um, and yeah, here it is. It was evening before she decided to look in on her brother and he's gone. And Dandelion says, don't blame the blossoms. I was the mastermind. How could you just let him go? He refuses to be Dara. Don't you understand the risks? And I understand Zomi's position here, but she's just taking a lot of this personally as well. Like Dandelion's right. You know, Dandelion heard what he was saying and Zomi doesn't believe him. That's really what it comes down to. She's hearing him and thinks that he's full of shit and Dandelion trusts what he's saying. We get then this amazing moment with the gods where everybody is like, well, this isn't how this was supposed to go. And we nudged, we tweaked, we tickled the wings of coincidence I had for trouble seeing your signs sometimes. He was looking for signs. I'm not surprised you didn't see them. You misunderstand me. Uh, the, the more mortals understand the universe, the less room there is for divine wonder. The bickering gets us nowhere. What's our plan? Did anyone really think the fate of Dara would be decided by a romance? That hate-hearted factions would lay down their swords and beat them into weaving hooks? Wait, 
that was never the plan. I thought they were trying to give, we were trying to give useful intelligence. I thought we were trying to assemble a team of talented advisors. I thought we were going to teach a lesson of experience. I thought we just wanted good food. I think, wait, back up. So we've been stumbling about at cross purposes. None of us even shared the same plan. You can see now why it's hard for the mortals to know what we want when we don't know, even know what we want. And I, can't, I just can't tell you guys how much I love this. The whole concept of basically the gods are intervening and doing shit, but they don't work together. This isn't like a grand complicated plan. It's just a bunch of shit happening. And that's not to say gods aren't real or that they don't influence stuff. It's just that it's not all preordained and destined because they are a mess. They are messy. The only thing we've accomplished, it seems, is furnishing a little drama while the mortals did what they always wanted. And I love that. Why do we bother meddling in their affairs? It never goes the way we want. No, not all of us are melancholy. Little sister, why do you look so tranquil? Your pair of lovebirds have flown apart. I can't say I'm pleased that they've parted ways, but neither am I disheartened. The boy was right. The mortals are not lonely reefs, each a bare rock stranded in a vast empty sea, but knots in a messy web woven from gossamer strands of love extending across time and space, at once confining as well as supportive. For Savo and Farah to do otherwise than they have done would be to deny their natures. A life isn't and shouldn't be a single grand romance. Who says teachers can't learn from students? Just as immortals must entangle themselves in conflicting loves for one another as they stumble through their all-too-brief span, no matter how much pain it brings them, we must enmesh ourselves in love for this land no matter how futile the effort sometimes appears. And one of them is like, so you think we should still fuck around with everything? And she's like, yeah, pretty much. One thing was sure. There would be far fewer meetings like this in the future. Far fewer attempts to align, confine, define. The freedom for each individual to choose their own tale moved the gods as much as the mortals. And that is the end of the book. So next episode is going to be the start of Speaking Bones, chapters one through four, according to this uh, chart here. I am very excited. I am ready. Let's do it. Um, all right, everybody, I'm going to wrap up. Thank you very much to Kyle for commissioning these books. Really enjoying myself. Until next time, toodaloo, motherfuckers.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.